Go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Just when you guys think that Paul is done, he just, he's literally just getting started. Just when you think that Paul has already given us everything we need to know about Christ and Jesus and who he is, when you feel like, like he, he just finished like going straight for the heart on declaring his supremacy, when you, finish, when you feel like he just finished stabbing at your soul on who Christ is or opening up your understanding, he goes straight, he goes straight for the gut on this one. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. He, Paul has taught us so much throughout this book. He's taught us so much, but yet the surface, on, the surface has not even been scratched on who our Lord Jesus is. But the, the, the good thing is that God's given us just enough to understand him, to know him. He asks us to come to him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He never asks you to come to him in, 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 in wisdom or knowledge. No, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. That's, that's how he asks us. And, and Paul's taught us that right here. In, in chapter one, he, he taught us to, how to declare the truth. He taught us how to declare the truth by declaring to us the supremacy of Christ and who Christ is. And Paul in chapter 2 taught us how to defend the truth by, by, how, by declaring to us the sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency, how to defend the truth, the sufficiency of Christ. He is all you need. He is everything. Nothing else, nothing less, nothing more. Just Christ the simplicity of Christianity, right? So now, chapter 3, Paul teaches us how to demonstrate the truth. He goes straight for the gut. You believe that Jesus Christ is, is God? You believe that he is Lord of your, your life? Good for you. The very demons believe. You know what sets us apart? Demonstrating the truth. Being doers. Talk is cheap. You believe that Jesus is God. You can tell anybody, I believe Jesus is God. But you're not demonstrating that he is God and Lord of your life by living a Christian life. It's just cheap talk. And here Paul teaches us to demonstrate the truth by demonstrating to us Christ's sufficiency by the way we live now the sufficiency of Christ in the way we live. So the title of my message today is Magnifying Jesus with Our Lives. Magnifying Christ with Our Lives. And I'm sure many of you have heard the quote, if you haven't, Francis of Assisi, when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The catch is, if you need to use words, use them. If words are necessary, Use them, but go preach the gospel. Only use words if it's necessary. Why? Because words are cheap. Francis here said this because actions speak louder than words. Actions on the gospel speaks louder than speaking about the gospel. And the best way for us to uh, declare, the best way for us to defend the truth the best way for us to defend any heresy is demonstrating the truth. Demonstrating it. 
The best, the best refutation for heresy is living a godly life, living a righteous life, a life of holiness. Holiness speaks of separation. That is why God is holy, because he is separated from us sinful, corrupt state, the, uh, the sinful, corrupt world. He is holy. When you begin to separate yourself from the desires, the things of this world, you begin to separate yourself unto God. You begin to become holy like he is holy. And remember I've mentioned um, when we first started this book that the book of Colossians was said to be the magnifying glass of the Bible. It's, it's the same thing with us. It's the same thing with our lives. We are the magnifying glass of the truth of Christ. Just like a magnifying, uh, a magnifying glass enlarges images, Right When you use a magnifying glass, we can also enlarge Christ. We can enlarge him with our lives to others, we, the, with the way we live. It, it, just like, like Jesus, the Bible um, in chapter 1, just like Paul said that Christ was the image of the invisible God, well, guess what? We are created in his image. We too are the image of the living Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are his image, meaning exact representation. And when you become a Christian, you become an exact representation of who? Christ. His righteousness, his holiness, the way he lived, that's the way we should live. Mimic Christ. Just as uh, Jesus made known to us our Heavenly Father, what do we do? We make known to people, to this world, about their Lord and Savior. We make known to them. This chapter, Paul's going to speak of two things. First, our heavenly goal. Our heavenly goal. And number two, he's going to speak of our earthly guidelines. Our guidelines, the instructions on what we need to do to live a godly life, to live a life as a Christian. And you may, as we go through this, you may think, oh man, that's too hard for me to do. Is it? Is it hard? Or do you love Christ? It's simple. Do you love Christ? Do you, do you choose to obey him? Or do you choose to make it hard? Because, yeah, our, our, in, in, this, in this body that we're in, it's, it's corrupt and we desire things of this world, but it's a daily dying to, uh, because we represent Christ and our love for him. So first in verses one through four, we're gonna see the first thing that Paul speaks about, our heavenly goal, our heavenly goal. Paul says, seek the things above. Our heavenly goal is seeking the things above. Verse one, if then... You were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. If then you were raised with Christ. If you are Christian here, the translation there is better translated as since you were, since then you were raised with Christ. It's not if anymore. I'm, I'm hoping all of you have made the decision to follow Christ in this room. If you haven't, see me or, or, one, or some of the leaders here. Christ, when you accept him, 
since then you were raised with Christ because, notice, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Since you were raised with Christ, um, you must seek the things which are above because since we know that Jesus is really raised from the dead, since we, you, you've accepted that, you believe it by faith that he was really raised from the dead, our identification with him becomes so real. It becomes real to us. You're, you identify in Christ. It becomes real because we know this. And since all of you here in this room are raised with Christ, notice, seek those things which are above. It is only because we are raised with Christ that we can seek the things above. Try telling that to um, someone that doesn't know Christ. They're going to think you're crazy. What do you mean things above? They don't know the things of heaven. But you as Christians, the veil has been removed, the scales from your eyes, the spiritual eyes in you, you can see. So now, since you can see those things, you can seek the things above because you're no longer blind to the things of heaven. You know the things of heaven, so you begin to seek the things of heaven. The word seek here. It's interesting, the word seek, it means zealously strive for. In the Greek, it's translated as earnestly seeking. Earnestly seeking, speaking of a continuous tense. Continually, it's a continuous daily seeking. Every day. It's not a one time, I seek you, Lord, now do everything I ask you to do, now make my life better. No, it's continuous dying. Jesus says, pick up your cross, deny yourself, Daily, we must do it daily. Seek the things above daily. Why? Because notice Ephesians 2, 6. It says, we were raised up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And therefore, because Christ is our focus and because he is seated in the heavenly places, guess what? It, we are seated with him in the heavenly places this very moment. If we are seated with him, then what? Verse 2, notice, set your mind, your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Set your mind, literally meaning to constantly be thinking about. That word set, or that phrase, set your mind, is translated to constantly constantly be thinking about and not only are we to seek heaven as we just saw in verse one not only are we to seek heaven but we are to think heaven think heaven the best christian living guys it comes from minds a secure mind a mind that is fixed on heaven because that's eternal you know we all have an end date we all have an expiration date here. In heaven, there is no expiration. It is for eternity. Seek the things of heaven have, uh, uh, and think of heaven. Because, you know, since Jesus is, is enthroned in the heavens, our thoughts, our heart, it becomes connected with him in heaven since we are what? Seated with him in the heavenlies. 
He has raised us up so our mind, our heart is connected to him. This is why it's so important that we protect our mind and our heart. It's so important that you do, uh, don't feed it any perverseness, any junk that this world offers. Flee from that because your mind, your heart's connected to Christ. Why would you feed it something that it's going to grieve the Holy Spirit? It'll grieve Christ. Instead, it's simple. Set your mind on heavenly things. Paul spoke about that in this book to, uh, excuse me, in Philippians. He spoke about um, programming your mind. To program your mind by feeding it good so that way good may come out. Don't feed it junk. Set your mind and heart to the heavenly things. Love the things of heaven. Study them. Let your heart, your mind be entirely surrendered to heaven, to them. And this is how you'll you'll truly be able to live a godly life when you're constantly, your mind is of of the Lord, your mind is thinking of Christ and how he is watching, he is present, he is watching the things you do. Verse three, it says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you realize your life is hidden with Christ in God? Meaning, do you realize that you are under, notice, you, you are under the divine protection of the almighty God. You are hidden with Christ. You are under his protection. Let me ask you guys a question. What is it that we usually protect the most? What is it that we usually hide away What is it that we protect the most? Ask yourself that question. What do I protect the most? What do I usually hide away to protect? We only what? We only hide away and protect the things that are what? Of great value to us, right? Only things that are valuable do you protect and you hide away in a safe, you hide it in a bank account because it's valuable. In a safe box, it's valuable. Therefore, because it is only the things of great value that are hidden and protected, notice that makes God, that makes us God's hidden treasure. We are his treasure. We are so valuable to him that he paid the ultimate high price that only God himself could pay, and that is Jesus Christ on the cross for us because of your value because of your value, valuable. You, my friends, are of a great value to God. Don't ever think you're not. Just because things aren't going your way does not mean that God doesn't love you. It does not mean that you are not valued by him. He died for the world, not for this church, not for Diamond Bar, not for Los Angeles. He died for the world, every single one of us that lives in this world. We are of value to him. Since we are in Christ, who is in what? Who is in God? We are protected. Notice, no thief, no evil, not even Satan himself can ever separate you from the love of God. Not even Satan 
can separate you from the love of God. From Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Read it. Satan, no evil, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Jesus also said in John 10, 10, 29, no one is able to snatch you from my Father's hands. Notice the divine protection. No one is able to snatch you away from his hands. You are hidden with Christ in God. Verse four, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here Paul's speaking of the rapture. He's speaking when Christ returns for us. We will appear with him in glory. Uh, Philippians 3:20 through 21 it says, "For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who what? Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body." his glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, it says, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Blink, try to blink, and that's how fast we will be transformed and taken up. The The twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. I don't want to miss that moment. I don't want to miss that. Because we are risen and raised with Christ, we, we, our focus is no longer on this world. We look upward to him in heaven. We look towards heaven and we look for his promise of his return. And Pastor Raul, when he teaches, when, he, he, when he's counseled me or, or uh, our, our staff here, he does meetings, he says the one thing that has kept him from stumbling, you've heard, uh, I, I, me personally, I've heard pastors stumble left and right. And, and our pastor, Pastor Raul, when he says the one thing that has kept me from stumbling is the return of Christ, the promise of the return of Christ because I look up for that. I look to the sky and the clouds waiting for him to come in glory and take us up. That's why he says, I don't, I don't, I work not to sin because I don't want to be caught in sin. We as believers must point our entire disposition towards the things of heaven. Everything just pointed upward. God will bless you. He will provide. When you are left with nothing and you have Christ, you have everything. Everything you need. Christ is everything. Next, in verses 5 through 21, Paul speaks of the second, the, the second thing he's going to speak of is our earthly guidelines, our instructions. These are the guidelines while we are here on earth. Paul here shows us two different earthly guidelines. First, we're going to see in verses 5 through 17, he shows us our personal guidelines. Notice, first, we are to put off our old vices, our old man, our old ways. We are to put them off. Verse 5, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Our members which are on the earth. Notice, the therefore points back 
to our identification with the risen and enthroned Jesus that we just spoke about. Therefore, since we are identified in Christ, therefore, since we are seated with Christ, put to death your members which are on the earth. And it is, it's because we understand this fact that we can put to death the things in our life that are contrary to what? To our identity in Christ. It is because we understand this, because we are Christians and God's given us this understanding, we can put to death the things in our life that are going to be contrary to the, our identity in Christ, that are going to be contrary to Christ as we begin to live a life of Christianity, a life of being Christ-like. Christianity means Christ-like. Verse 5 again, notice, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Notice fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Fornication, uncleanliness, passion, and evil desire. Notice those four. All these four, it speaks of sexual sin, sexual immorality. Fornication is translated as sexual immorality. That's what fornication means, referring to uh, any kind of intercourse outside of marriage. That's what that means. We are to keep we are to keep that holy only after marriage. Only after marriage. I failed. I failed that. And I'm, I'm sure some of us have, but guess what? We are new, a new man, a new creation in Christ. So only, only through marriage. It speaks of, of sexual immorality. And the word uncleanliness, it has a wider range of meaning than fornication. It, it, it includes, notice, the misuse of sex. It includes the misuse of that. And I know this is sometimes very uncomfortable to talk about, but it's biblical, and we teach the full counsel of God. So notice, Paul starts with these to show us the seriousness of sexual sin and how damaging it can be to us. A lot of times we're like, man, God does not desire for us to have fun, <laughs> right? If he created it, shouldn't it be normal? He created it in holiness. He created it for a purpose. When, when, when you experience that, that, that uh, sexual uh, relationship with someone, you connect to them, not just physically, you connect to them spiritually. You become one Biblically, this is serious. This is a serious sin because you are sinning against your own body. What does the Bible say about body, our body, and sexual immorality? What does it say? Turn with me really quick to First Corinthians chapter six. Let's get into the nitty gritty. First Corinthians. Chapter 6, let's read what it says. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. I love the way it's translated. It's a very uh, literal translation, very simple. Notice, 
In 13, chapter 6, 13, it says, You say that food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us up from the dead by his power. Again, he will raise us up by his power just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, notice, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, notice he becomes one body with her? For the scripture says that two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run. Literally, in NLT, verse 18, it says, run from sexual sin. No other sin is so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you, notice, with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. God bought your body. He purchased you from what? From the depths of hell. He purchased you. He paid high price, the blood of the lamb, a high price. And notice, we must also put to death, what is the, the, four, the fifth one? Covetousness. Covetousness, which is idolatry. And you know, sometimes covetousness may seem very simple, harmless, and innocent to us, but do not underestimate covetousness. When you begin to covet your neighbor's belongings or other people's things, you begin to covet them. It, 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 it is a, an insidious kind of greed, covetousness. It is an insidious greed, and it's, notice, nothing less than idolatry. What does idolatry mean? It means the worship of idols. When you covet something, you worship it. Sometimes I covet some cars, some nice cars, but yeah, I got to check myself. I, 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 I want it, but I don't desire it anymore because I desire the things of heaven. From the, I desire the things of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is my desire. And there are many ways that covetousness can be very destructive many ways, but f first, it, it is obviously flat-out idolatry, as it says here, meaning that it only obtains when man thinks that life only consists of his possessions instead of a righteous relationship with God. When life only consists, the, the, the mentality, this is, this is what I'm talking about, the mentality of a secular world versus the mentality of a Christian. The secular world desires, they base their life, they think that life only consists of what they own, of what they can get. A Christian lives a life 
to please God. A life of righteousness, of holiness. And, and it can, it, covetousness, it can also be a sin against others. Notice, because in order to satisfy your desires, others become wronged. When you try to desire, when you try to satisfy the desire you want, you, this happens a lot in, in, in corporate America. People try to move up the ladder to get the bigger paycheck, to get the company, to get the position that they, 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 their loyalty, they're, they're not loyal to anyone but themselves. So they wrong people to get there. They'll stab people in the back to get there. It's, it can also be very self-destructive, leading us away from the, the eternal things to temporary things for instant gratification. Covetousness will point you away from heaven. It'll point you away from eternity and it'll make you desire things that are temporary, this world. Desiring more things of the world than, than the things of God. That's why Paul starts off with, think heaven. Look towards heaven. That is eternal. The, the point here is that, that every godly person that seeks their happiness in, in God and, and sets their minds on the things above, this is the true blessing. The temporary will never be filled. We have a void. The temporary will never fill us. The eternal things will fill us. Why? Because it's eternal. If, I'm, if I've tr I had a choice between a temporary Ferrari and an everlasting eternal Ferrari, I, I mean, what would you choose? <laughs> All right? You can choose your own car, whatever it is. A temporary, whatever you desire, or eternal one. Not saying that's heaven, but... I'm just trying to prove a point here. The covetous man, it, he, seeks in his, he seeks happiness in his money, which in the end, God alone can give. Everything we have, only God can give and has given. Therefore, his covetousness is properly considered idolatry. Because he worships the creation instead of worshiping the creator, the one who's given it. Verse 6 through 7, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 7, In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Notice Paul is speaking to Christians here. He is speaking to to the Christian church of Colossae. These things, these sins, they invite the wrath of God upon us. Because of these, these things, the, the, the sins that were just mentioned are part of the way that the world lives and that is not the way that Jesus lived. Think of what Christ owned when he was here. Did the Bible talk about him owning anything? No, he came as a servant he says, the, 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 for, um, the Son of God does not even have a place to lay his head. He didn't own any possessions because he was so heavenly minded. He was so focused on his goal, which was the joy set before him, us. 
He was so focused on winning us back that he said, I don't desire anything in this world. It's going to perish anyways. I'm going to go to what's going to last. We are eternal. Believe it or not, whether you are in hell or heaven, it is an eternal afterlife. The choice is ours. We are eternal. So Christ chose to save us for eternity. Eternal. He speaks here to the Christian. To be Christian, again, it means to be Christ-like. Therefore, if your identity as Christians, if we identify in Christ, if our identity is in Christ and we know that Jesus would never walk in any of these sins, then we shouldn't either. Every Christian is faced with this choice. You say, well, God knows what we're going to choose, so how is that a choice? How is that free will? Did you not choose today whether to sin or not sin? Did he make you sin? We have a choice, the freedom of choice. Who will I identify with? Who will you identify with? The world or Jesus? When Christ returns, will your identity be in the world? Or will it be in Christ? Because remember, this world is under condemnation. It is subject to the wrath of God, this world. That is biblical. That's what the Bible talks about, and that is our authority. That is why Paul said in verse 3, our life, notice, must be hidden in Christ. Notice, our life must be identified in Christ so that our life can be protected by Christ. Notice this, Christ came not to protect us from, from Satan or his, his demonic army. He did not come to protect us from that. What did he come to protect us from? He came to protect us from the wrath of the living God. That's why he had to come and wipe our sins away to protect us from the wrath of the living God. God. Matthew 10, 28 says, do not fear those who kill the body, Satan and his demons who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear him because you don't want to go to hell. Fear him out of reverence, out of respect for him and what he's done because you love him dearly from what he protected us from. I pray and I beg that, that we find our identity in Christ, that our identity be in Christ, because Christ on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God. When he was on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. Why would we continue in sin? He wiped it free and clear. Why would we allow that back in our life? And notice Paul gives us another group of sins that we are to put off. The first six that he mentioned were self-sins. They were, self, they were sins against our own bodies. And these next six that he mentions are social sins. They are sins against other people. Notice verse 8 through 9. But now you yourself are to put off, these anger, put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, Filth language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. 
each one of these sins mentioned. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy mouth, lying, each of these sins are primarily committed by what we say. Our mouth, our tongue is wicked. Our tongue is powerful by the things we say. So Paul here is calling the believer to a greater, deeper obedience. You're probably in here thinking, oh man, that's getting really hard. I don't know if I want to do this. Do you realize who lives in you? The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit is God who can do all things. When the disciples asked him, who, who then can be saved? When Jesus said, he quoted, he quoted, it is harder for a rich man, is, it is easier for a, a camel to go into the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get, hev- to get into heaven. So that is an impossibility, right? So then his disciples asked him, well, that's impossible, so who then can be saved? What was his response? What's impossible for man is possible for God, and God lives in you. He lives in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the power to not do any of these sins. He is calling us to a deeper obedience. Paul tells us to put off all these and brittle your tongue. Brittle it. In James, he gives us the same message. Chapter 1, verse 26. He tells us, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Useless. If you want to learn more about the wickedness of your tongue for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you the chapter, James chapter 3. Read James chapter 3, 1 through 12. You'll see the power of your tongue and what James says. Brittle your tongue. Before you speak, Think about what you're going to say because it can destroy someone. That, that is not a Christian. A Christian who speaks anger, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, remove that. You have the power to remove it. Put off these sins. Control our tongue. Since you have put off the old man, notice, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, since you, since, since you say that you are a Christian and that you are a new creation, then you should no longer be speaking with an untamed tongue. Doers, do it. Talk is cheap. Do it. Don't speak with an untamed tongue because an untamed tongue or any of these, sin, or any of these sins that are mentioned are a sign of your old man when that man should be dead. Think about it. How can anything that is dead show sign of life? Do you go to a graveyard and see any movement, any sign of life? No. It's gone. Forever dead. Verse 10. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You see, we are a new man. We are a new creation. Our new image as a new creation is of Christ. And we are now his image. 
We are now in his image. What is his image? Holiness, righteousness. We are holy. We are righteous. We are to live holy. We are to live in righteousness. And because the new man is renewed in knowledge, he should be hungry to know what God says in his word. Since you are a new creation, a new man, you should have a hunger, a desire to know what is God telling me? What does his word say? I want to know more. I want to learn more. Because God, that, that, that we need to know that God wants in Romans 8.29 for us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Period. The image of God wants this to us to be conformed. The only way we can be conformed to the image of his son is if we know Jesus and how he lived and every decision he made, study it, learn it, think of heaven. Always be thinking about, meditate, to always be thinking about it, of the word of God. It shall never depart from your mouth. Or else if, you, if it does, blasphemies come out. Let holiness come out. Let the word of God come out. Verse 11, it says, where there is nothing, excuse me, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, uh, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul here reminds them again that because of the teaching of Judaism. If you remember the false teachers of this church, the reason Paul wrote this letter is they were false teachers. They were trying to, uh, syncret- uh, uh, they were, it was called syncretism, where they blend different religions together. They try to add to Christianity and Judaism was one of them. And, and uh, he reminds us again of this because of their teachings where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, that was their ritual, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. The new man, guys, our new creation, it's part of a family, this family which does not favor race. Notice it does not favor race, it does not favor nationality, class, culture, or ethnicity. There is no favor. This new family that we are in, us, this family, we only favor Christ. So all are welcomed, accepted. Sin is not accepted and not welcomed. But if they desire to know the Lord, if, they, if, if, if we all desire true repentance in our lives, live a godly life, we are all part of the same family. Notice in this new family, he says, Christ is all in all. Excuse me, Christ is all and in all. Jesus is everything to us. And Jesus is in all of us as what, remember, we are the body of Christ. He is, he is everything to us. He is in all of us, in one body, and in one church. One body, one church. Jesus is all Jesus is everything, and he is in all of us. We are to put off the old vices 
And now notice we are to put on the new virtues. Verse 12, therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Let me stop real quick. Notice the elect of God, holy and beloved. These, Paul here gives us the, the three descriptions of, of, of what it is to be a Christian, of what it is to be a believer. Three descriptions. First, the elect, meaning we are what? Chosen by God. The elect. Second, holy, meaning we are set apart by God. Holy speaks of a separation. We are set apart by God. And third, notice beloved. We are loved by God. We are loved by God. We are chosen, we are set apart, and we are loved. That is is the description of a believer here that Paul gives us. Therefore, you know, since this is our new description as a new man, notice verse 12 again. We're going to go through verse 13, 13. It says, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Being Christ-like, guys, since, since Christ did it, we must do it. A, it. Notice a significant measure of our Christian life here is found simply in how we treat people. How do we treat people? How do we treat one another? I, I want to talk about forgiveness a little more than all the other ones because I'm sure we all find this very difficult in our lives, right? Forgiveness is there, and I, as we go through this, I want you to think of someone that maybe you haven't forgiven. I want you to think of someone or or someone that's wronged you. Have you forgiven them? And I'm going to explain. Notice we are told to live a life of forgiveness. Notice forgiving one another. Paul doesn't just tell us to forgive one another. He also gave us the reason why we need to forgive. Paul tells us to forgive each other after what? The pattern of Jesus, even as Christ forgave you. Even as Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32 tells us, Forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. When we understand the way Jesus forgave us, notice we will always become more generous in our forgiveness to others. So let's, let's, let's talk about how did Jesus forgive us? How did God forgive us? Think about it. How did Christ forgive you? Consider this. Consider the staggering amount of debt that Jesus forgave us. Consider all the debt that you had, that your sinful nature that cost him his life. It cost him his life. Remember, it was, it was like, the Bible says that it was an unpayable amount of debt. It was only able to be paid by a perfect man and a holy a holy man, a perfect man, a righteous God, a holy God, a perfect God. It can only have been paid through God and his life. 
it was, it's impossible for us to have paid the debt that we owed God in a hundred lifetimes over. If you were super religious, the most Christian person on the planet, living a, a, that, a, a super Christian life for a hundred times over without Christ, he'd be dead. But Christ came and he paid that debt. And, and notice he was quick to pay it. He was quick to forgive us of our sins. Psalms 86.5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. He was quick to forgive our very expensive debt. Now consider and compare to the smallness of debts or the, the wrongness that others have done towards us. Consider maybe someone you know, mistreated you, said something behind your back, or, you know, called you some silly name. Consider that to how we burden God with the weight of the sins of the world. What the difference? It would be so, it would be such ingratitude towards uh, uh, what Christ did for us if we fail to forgive others of their tiny debts, it would be so ingratitude. It would be so a stab in the back to Christ if we fail to forgive people of their puny, tiny little debts towards us. And Jesus spoke of this in, in Matthew uh, uh, 18. In, in Matthew chapter 18, he spoke about this. And he gave a parable of the unforgiving servant. Read it when you get a chance. It is the parable of the servant who did not forgive. Read about what happens to him. The forgiveness that we have received, it's used to enforce the duty of forgiveness towards others. We have a duty to forgive because we've been forgiven. Because we've been forgiven all our debts. So we have a duty to forgive others. And now remember, Jesus not only forgave us, but he also said what? He says he remembers our sin no more. He has cast it, as I said this last week, he has cast it as far as the east is to the west. He has buried it in the deepest part of the ocean, meaning eternally forgotten forever. When we come into the presence of, of our Lord, he's going to say, what sins? He has not only forgiven us, he has forgotten. So let's say someone offended you and, 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 and they asked you for forgiveness, which this happens a lot. And your response is, yes, I forgive you, but I cannot forget it, right? I can't forget what you did to me, but I forgive you. That is a lame forgiveness and it is not worth much. That is a lame forgiveness. It's not really worth much. Listen, guys, a true full forgiveness requires you to forgive and forget. Have you heard of that one? Forgive and forget because God, once having forgiven us, notice he puts his trust back in us instantly. He invites us back to a fellowship with him instantly. Once you repent and you ask for forgiveness, he immediately says, okay, come back to me, my child. Let's work together because now I trust you. I don't remember your sin anymore. I have forgiven you. It's gone. He has wiped it clean. This is true forgiveness. And this is commanded to us by God.
or else how can he forgive us such a great debt if we can't forgive such a, a small offense? How can we be forgiven? We can't. It's impossible. It's impossible. Verse 14, but above all these things, love, which is the bond of perfection. To summarize all these things that we described in this passage, notice love perfectly fulfills what God requires of us Christians to do. Love perfectly fulfills everything we just talked about. If you simply love, I know it seems like a lot of things not to do, but all you need to do is one thing. Love. Love. Romans 13, 8 and 10, it says, Owe no one anything except love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to fulfill the law? You love. And guys, love is not love. As this world says, love is love. That's, that's not love. Love is agape. That's biblical, holy love, agape. Although someone wrongs you, you love them. That is, it is, it is a sacrificial kind of love. All the virtues that are listed here in verses 12 through 13, they represent love, to the highest level. But guess what? Love is larger than every single one of them. The love is larger than all of them combined. Love. If we do these things in love, notice verse 15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The peace of God can only rule in your hearts if you have love, if you love. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. The new man receives the peace of God in their lives. Do you have that peace? What, what are, do you have the, the peace in what you are doing, in what you are thinking today? Is there peace in your life? Or are you, is there anxiety or is there, there doubt? Or No, there's peace when you begin to live a godly, righteous life. Examine your lives. Only then will you truly feel the peace of God. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Notice the new man. He walks in the word of God and in worship with other believers. This is why we worship together The word of God should dwell in us so richly that it spontaneously brings out songs within us. That it spontaneously brings out songs of worship. Consider when you are in the shower or driving or whatever and a random Christian song pops in your mind. Has that ever happened to you guys? Randomly, like I'll just be walking down the street or like I always walk down the street. I'll just be driving my car to work. I'll just be driving it around and, and a, a Christian song pops up. Usually the song we just played, I love that song. I'm always thinking, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I'm just singing it. That, guys, that, that's a sign of God's word dwelling in you, inside of you. 
Now, don't go purposely start singing ran, uh, random Christians. No, let it come to you. The Holy Spirit brings it out of you because you are, you're, the word of God is inside of you. Therefore, because the word of God of Christ dwells in you, notice verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice this new man. He lives his life, all of his life for Christ, for Jesus. If you think you're missing out on the pleasures of this world by giving your life fully and completely to Christ, oh man, I just pray that the Lord open your eyes. The things that this world offers, it does not compare to the blessings of a fully surrendered life to the Lord. When you become this new creation in Christ, you will only, notice, you will only seek to do everything, all the things, and what does it say? In the name of the Lord Jesus. And you will be able to persevere in the difficulty of doing these things. They're hard. Some, yeah, we, we say, well, there's a lot of things that are impossible to do. You'll be able to persevere in these things if you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how you win. That is how you have victory because what you're doing now, what you're doing today, what you're doing tonight, what you're doing this weekend, it is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, verse 18 through 25, Paul shows us our relational guidelines. Almost done. The guidelines of a godly home. If you remember, Paul gave us these exact same guidelines when we went through the study in Ephesians chapter 5 through 6, the exact same guidelines. Walk in wisdom. If, if, you want your, if, if you want Christ to be the center of your life, notice, if you want him to be the center of your life, if you want to have peace in your life, peace in your home, if you want wisdom to manage your home or whatever it is you need to manage or, or live a godly life, these are the guidelines for that. And notice it begins with the home. First, Paul speaks about the relationship between wives and husbands. Verse 18, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. We've talked about this, the word submit. The ancient Greek word translated submit is essentially a word used from the military. Paul used it, he, he, uh, it, it means to be under rank, to submit. It means to be under rank. It speaks of the way that a military unit is organized among levels of rank. There are levels of rank. We've, as we know, generals, uh, uh, colonels, majors, captains, sergeants, privates. There are levels of uh, or, or of an organized level of rank in the, in the army. We know that. And each is obligated. Each level is obligated to respect those in higher ranks. They are obligated to do that. And we know that a person, let's say in a, a private, we know that maybe a private can be smarter, more talented, and maybe an overall better person than the general himself. We, that's a strong possibility. I know my fiance is way more talented, way more smart than me. I know that for sure. But there's a level of order. There is a submission. We are, he that, that, that's, that private, although he is smarter and better in everything than the general, he is still under rank 
for the general. The, the private isn't submitted to the general guys so much as a person as he is submitted to the general as the, he is the general. He is, he is above him in authority. In the same way, guys, if you are married here, if you decide if you want to be married, ladies, the wife knows you guys do not submit to your husbands because he is deserving of it. Get that out of your head. It's not because he deserves to be, husbands are the most imperfect creatures sometimes in this world. It's like, they don't, it's not that they're deserving of it. She, you guys submit because he is your husband. He is that authority given by God. And the idea of submission, it doesn't have anything to do with someone being smarter or better or more talented. It has to do with a God-appointed order, biblically, our authority, God-appointed order. Anyone who has served in the armed forces, you know this. The rank has to do with order and authority. Order and authority, not with value or ability. It does not have to do with wives future wives submit to your own husbands notice as is fitting to the lord as is fitting to the lord i'm not directly looking at my fiance but as fitting to the lord submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the lord not as fitting to yourselves it's not i know this world what they the way they think you know what was it called women empowerment What is fitting to the Lord? That's why being a Christian speaks of humility, being humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God in his order and, 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 and uh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Notice men, however, men, the wife's submission is never to be forced on her by demand or wrong motives. It is never to be forced. We must earn our wife's submission before we can receive it. Earn it through, verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Notice Paul's words to the husband safeguards his words to the wife. Paul's words here safeguards his words uh, to the wife the, the wives are to submit to their husbands. It is never an excuse for a husband to act as a tyrant or a bully over their wife. And we see that so much today as they're trying to force respect from their wife. That's not how it works. A husband must love his wife. And the Greek word for love here is translated agape. The love speaks of the, the kind of love that God showed us. However, Strictly speaking of the love of agape, it cannot compare, we cannot compare it to God's love because it is impossible for us to love the way God loved. Men in our corrupt state are said to have love for sin and the world, but God does not. So we can't really compare it. However, our, the agape love that we can do is defined as, as, as sacrificial type of love as a giving love sacrificially and it's not so much that this world guys has to do with emotion but it has everything men it has everything to do with self-denial remember why why your 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 wedding vows what are your weddings vow uh, are the, through sickness and in health he's not always going to be good looking she's not always going to be pretty 
self-denial, you've chosen to love her the rest of your life. This love is a love that is without changing. Without changing, it's a love that gives without demanding or expecting something in return. That love, it, it's a love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants. Think, did, did Christ ask anything of us when he decided to die for you? Did he say, I'm going to wait for them to love me first, then I will love them. Then I will die for them. Then I will save them. No. He loved us anyways, guys, knowing that man would reject him. Knowing that so many would reject him. He loved us anyways, and he embraced the cross anyways. This is how we are to love each other when Paul speaks of love. And husband and wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Next, Paul speaks about the relationship between children and parents. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. This is straightforward enough. Fifth commandment, honor thy father, thy mother. Quick fact, we are to obey our parents. We are to honor our mom and dad. Does not matter how old you are. If you are no longer under their authority or their household, you still honor and you still obey. Verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest anyone become discouraged. You see, guys, children here, they, they have the responsibility to obey, but it begins with the way we treat our children. If you have children or if you plan on having children, notice Paul says fathers, because we are the head of the home and we are the ones that will be held accountable for our families. It's a big responsibility, men. Fathers or future fathers, you have a responsibility not to provoke your children. A, a parent can be provoking or be, they can be harsh, uh, too demanding, they can be too controlling, unforgiving, or you know, just plain angry all the time. We, I've seen parents like that in public, always angry, smack their, hit, uh, their kid across the head. That is provoking them to wrath, this harshness it doesn't necessarily mean it, it can be expressed through action, but it can also be expressed in many different ways, like even nonverbal communication. When you, when you deny a conversation with your child, it is it, like your, you know, your body language sometimes. I'm super readable in my body language if I'm having a bad day. You can see it. Kids know. So Paul here urges parents and especially fathers to not irritate their children by being so unreasonable in their de demands to the point where these, the children, they, they, become, they become so discouraged th and they come to think that it is useless to try to please their parents. This should remind us guys, of how important it is to be gracious and merciful as parents because since we are to teach them about Christ, what a better way to do it than teaching them about mercy and grace, right? Because God, who is rich in mercy, does not discipline us as much as we deserve to be disciplined. We, we all know that. Mercy, God, as a compassionate father towards us, he tempers he, he tempers the stroke of his hand towards us with kindness and love. We are to do, as parents, we are to do the same. And last, third, Paul speaks about the relationship between employees and employers. 
your work life, bond servants or employees, obey in all things your masters or employers according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Notice, for you serve the Lord Christ. As employees, guys, we are always, a lot of times, like when I used, when I used to work at a retail store, I was always tempted to work only as hard as I needed to, Right? We're always tempted to only work as hard as we need, thinking we only have to please man. God wants every single one of us, every single one of his people, to ultimately know that they are working for him. So we are to please him. We should do it it heartily as to the Lord and not men. This does not just limit us to our jobs it is whatever you do and everything you do do it heartily as to the lord since we are what heavenly minded we are always aware on who we serve for you serve the lord christ in closing verse 25 we will finish all the way through this one goes into uh, verse 1 chapter 4 notice but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Same goes to the employer. As Christians, guys, as we put on the new man, we, the, the, employer, the, employee, the employer becomes, what does it say, just and fair to those who work for them. Even, guys, even, notice, even think about it, even as the secular world sees it as, a, as something wrong, as something terrible for a boss to cheat or mistreat his employer, right? There's laws against that. Even in the secular world, they do that. It, it's, it, but what if you're a Christian? It's far more worse if you mistreat your employers. It is far worse as a Christian to do that. So if you are a Christian, then you represent Christ who treated all of us just and fairly, right? Therefore, in closing, treat your employees who God has entrusted to you, treat them justly and fairly because all, although you are their master, it says, although you are the masters, you, uh, employers, Paul calls them masters. Although you are their master, notice who is master and Lord over all. The Lord Christ. In the end, guys, living a godly life is seeking the things of above, setting your minds on the things of above. Set your mind and your heart on a heaven, on heaven daily in everything you do. Set your mind and heart because why? Your master is in heaven. And he is standing at the door. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you, Lord, and we thank you for this time together. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And Lord, just the the power of your word and what you've taught us. And Lord, just, Lord, whatever we must do to bring you honor and to bring you glory, Lord, may you give us the strength to do it, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit be in us, Father. 
Lord, that you always direct our heart, our minds to heaven as we are one day going to be in your presence. May we always picture that moment in your presence. May we always picture what you say to us. Welcome in thy good and faithful servant, Lord. May we always live by that. May we be a faithful servant. May we be worthy of you calling us that. So Lord, just go before us now. And I pray, Lord, that you get us all home safely, that you give us traveling mercies, that you bless us this weekend and the rest of the week and month, Lord, and and the rest of the year, Lord. May you grant safety and protection towards us. In your precious name we pray, amen.